Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. We're taking a wander through the weird and wonderful on today's show. We'll be taking a gander at the contents of Jarvis Cocker's loft, the basis for both his new memoir and an exhibition. And from the individual myths we tell about our past selves to the cultural stories that shape our collective history, we head to another exhibition, Once Upon a Time, that looks at folklore, myths and fairy tales through the ages. That is all ahead here on Monocle on Culture. Do stay tuned. First up on the agenda, the frontman of rock band Pulp, darling of the British music scene in the 1990s, but also makers of timeless music, where he's written a new memoir. It uses the random assortment of things found in a pop star's loft as starting points to tell his story. There are poignant photos, industrious plans for the future of the band scribbled in notebooks, as well as finding the strange in the ordinary. Could you be haunted by a packet of Wrigley's Extra? The memoir is accompanied by an exhibition at the Gallery of Everything in London. Sophie went along and Jarvis gave her a tour through the curios that tell the story of his life. Hello, Jarvis here. I'm here at the exhibition for I've got a book coming out called Good Pop Bad Pop and it's all based on things that were found in the loft of a house that I used to live in. I started clearing out that loft looking at the objects that were in there and realizing that they could tell a story if I looked at them in the right order and stuff. So it's a memoir I suppose but coming at it from physical objects rather than memories which led to me telling a different story I think and here at the Gallery of Everything, some of those objects are on show that we're looking now at a periodic table that's been put together of the various objects. Because there's a quote from the book, if it could be represented in visual terms, the contents of my brain would probably resemble the contents of this loft, a jumble of things with no one factor in dominance. I kind of believe that. It's like an investigation into my creative life. And also what I think is, I think it's the same for everyone, you know, we all walk around with this jumble of things in our minds and probably everybody's got a cupboard or a drawer at home with a jumble of objects that you're not sure where, how you pick them up. I think that's the beginnings of creativity, really. It's, it's the interaction between those things that spark ideas off. We're looking at a vitrine here and it's got a shirt in the middle of it with it's orange with circles on it. So this is significant to me because that's the very f first second-hand clothing item that I ever bought. So that was from a jumble sale just up the road from where I lived in Sheffield. So people who know anything about me, I suppose, will know that I tend to wear... People call it vintage now, but in my day it was second-hand which was the beginning it was an important thing for me because it was in the wake of punk rock happening i decided i wanted to be in a band i decided i wanted to do something different and so choosing my own clothes was an important part of that and i was just very lucky because this church was very near our house and jumble sales were very cheap you know that shirt would have cost 
five pence probably so it was really an easy way to experiment with clothes you could go and spend 50p and have a whole new wardrobe and just see what things you liked and which you didn't and maybe throw away the ones you didn't and start to learn about clothes that way another object right next to that shirt is this fantastic dirty joke book so I discovered on the back seat of a bus after we'd been to the swimming baths at school and uh, as you can imagine I was around 13 at the time so there was a massive fight for it amongst all the boys and the back cover got ripped off somehow I got to take it home and I in the book I talk about how it was at a time when I was just about going through puberty so I was looking for clues about what sex was about I lived in a household which was very female dominated my father had left when I was seven there were there were no kind of men around so I was desperate to find out about what sex was like from a man's perspective I thought I would learn something from this book but it's just really rubbish and all the jokes are really bad and, and I didn't learn that much at all In this vitrine, we've got, um, this is my mum's wedding photograph. So this was in a time when basically she got pregnant. She didn't know who the father was because she'd, she'd gone to the doctor thinking that she just had some kind of abdominal complaint. And then he said, you're four months pregnant. And so she tracked it down that it must have been a Christmas party where she'd had a kind of thing with my dad. In those days, you know, you got married, so, so they, they got married. Uh, so I'm there on that picture as a four-month-old thing. <laughs> um, and I, it was a look on my mum's face, really. She looks quite um, kind of scared, I don't know. And, and it, it made a, when I found that picture when I was maybe about the same age as she was, she was like 21 when she got married, and I ended up writing a song about that. So... Um, yeah, so, so, you know, so some things, that, the thing with this loft is I would find significant things like that picture and then I would find absolute rubbish like, you know, this thing that I still don't know what it is. It's like, it looks like it should be a key ring, but it's got this funny stirrup at the end. There was no discrimination in the objects in the loft. It was, some of it was absolute rubbish, some of it was important to me. Sometimes the more insignificant pieces of rubbish trigger more of a memory than maybe something you wrote down that you thought was really significant at the time, but then you look at it and you just wince when you read it 20 years later. It's, that, it's the kind of mixture of stuff, I suppose, that, that's important. The thing that I was asking myself a question about was why I'd a, I hung on to this stuff. You know, mo I moved house a lot and stuff, you know, and yet it's just been there in the dark. I mean, this is the first time these things have seen the light of day, really. I mean, I, as I say, I carried some of them around when I was writing the book. But I've never had them on the display in my house. They've just been in the dark getting dusty or a lot of clothes got eaten by moths. This jumper, I'm looking at an acrylic star jumper that survived because it's made entirely of man-made fibers. So moths would not touch that. Why did I write the song on that one day? Why did you touch my hand and softly say... 
we're now looking at one of the objects that really convinced me that rather than just, you know, clear the loft and put it all in a skip and get it out of my life side some space. When I found this object, I thought, oh no, it would be better to go through it and see if there are important things here. So this is like an, an exercise book, uh, which I wrote in, I guess, when I was about 14 or 15. And it's got a pulp master plan, kind of like a manifesto of what the group is going to be. But it also, it starts off with this, the pulp illustrated wardrobe, which is a guide to what the group is going to wear. We've got duffel coats. I mean, straight away, a duffel coat is really not a practical thing to wear on stage because you'd just be miles too hot. But I think it was more just a, a general look that you would wear all the time, you know. So duffel coat, crew neck jumpers, garish t-shirts, plain shirts, rancid ties, drain pipe trousers, Oxfam or paper jacket. I don't know what that doesn't make any kind of sense. Cheapo white baseball boots, silly socks, hair shortage, shortage, a sequin being used for a silly purpose. There are other diagrams. There's like a diagram of when we've become famous and we've got our own company called Pulp Incorporated. That's then going to free repressed artists from the grip of major record companies. And it's, it's shown in the, in the form of a, of a cleaver about to cut through an arm, which has a repressed artist in its grip. Down here in the basement's more kind of kind of an installation, I suppose. You can hear in the background that's me reading the audio book. Under the stairs, un well, under the pavement, there's a vaulted space, and that's got videos. There's some very early pulp videos that were made on VHS cameras, and then some stuff that was shot by a friend at school who had a Super 8 camera. So all stuff from the very, very early days of the band. In this room, these are slides taken by my grandfather. But I didn't, I didn't discover these slides until after he died. So there are all these kind of intimate family things, but he never showed them as when we were younger. And you can see I was talking about the female-dominated environment. So this is me at, at six or seven, I think. And this was my immediate family. That My dad, had, this is my mum, my dad had left. My auntie Yutta, her husband had died, and my auntie Mandy, her husband, left at the same time as my dad's my grandma. But my granddad took the picture, but he was like old, so I didn't really consider him as a, a man in that kind of active way, you know. And that's, that's a picture of him. So he took these pictures, yeah, which are kind of, I don't know, the, the, this is an important thing because they're in a kind of domestic type of room. I realized that that kind of not a strictly conventional home life, but it was very important, that kind of security I got from feeling of being loved, I suppose, by uh, the people who did bring me up was important, you know. And then the final bit of the exhibition at the very far space is, is, is a recreation of my bedroom when I first started trying to write songs. So I'd been given a guitar by a boyfriend of my mum's who was a scuba diving instructor so he gave me my first guitar so we've got that set up here along with this it's like a ghetto blaster but it's got a drum machine 
built into it so you can kind of get a rhythm going and and play along with it so i'm hoping that some points during the exhibitions run that people can come in here and have a play this is like the very basic musical equipment that i had when i first started and that that horrible noise you can hear in the background is um is one of the very first pulp rehearsals i found the cassette of that so it's as you can hear it's just when we started out you know we no one had studied music so we just were making a noise and hoping that it would magically turn into a song and and eventually after a certain amount of time it did start to settle down into something it took a long time though and then yeah I, these the walls are all photocopiers were a big thing in Sheffield in the late 70s early 80s and so we would do a design for a poster photocopy it at the local post office or whatever and then go and stick them up around town so these aren't all designed by me some of them are but these ones were a girlfriend of mine at the time who went to the art college, so they're a bit more accomplished. Some were done by the guitarist of the band because he had access to a photocopier at work so he could get a bit more kind of creative. Uh, yeah, and, and I just kind of pasted them. It's, it's a fairly... It's kind of strange putting them up because I'd, I felt like I was, I, was, I was back in my teenage bedroom. It was quite a strange feeling, actually. When you write songs, you have to be prepared to expose things about yourself. It's all about, you know, you have to delve into your intimate moments, you know. So that doesn't bother me so much. That's part of the deal if you decide to do those things. Here we are. This is before I'd learned how to tune a guitar. But no, what I hope it does is show that you can make something out of anything, you know. That's part of the message of the book, really, if it's got a message. But, you know, that anybody's capable of creating things, you know. We've all got that ability within us. It's just whether you decide to follow it or not. And in terms of material, it can be anything. In fact, it's best if it's just what's surrounding you rather than thinking that inspiration's going to come from on high from somewhere, you know. It's, it's there if you look for it hard enough. Jarvis Cocker there with some wise words for creative minds. And to find out how the exhibition came to be, a quick word from the gallery's impish creative director, James Brett. Jarvis and I are uh, old friends. In fact, our first show here at the gallery was with Jarvis based on a TV series he did called Journeys Into the Outside. And um, we both like unusual art and, and material by people who are a little outside the mainstream. And um, he... He said, James, would you like to come for a boiled egg? So we met at a cafe in Paris, had the boiled egg, and he said, look, I've written this book, and maybe there's something of interest, and we discussed doing an exhibition. And as we talked more and more, we thought, oh, this could be really good. So the, 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 the show is sort of an installation of Jarvis's archive, which are all the elements that make up his life and also inspired him. And then on top of that, we've taken some of the best parts, which are like the exercise book where he laid out the grand master plan of his life as a pulp frontman, 
and then we've turned those into prints. We found photographs, amazing photographs by his grandfather that we then, I said, you know, wow, these are incredible. These are like, you know, mini Egglestons. So we've, we've made those a limited edition of 20 prints. And suddenly the whole thing started taking off. So there's uh, old films of Jarvis as a, as a teenager. And then the back room downstairs is, is I might explain to you, is a, is a recreation sort of, of a teenage bedroom that you can go and play Jarvis's instruments. The things that appealed to me were the most mundane. So if we go sort of cabinet by cabinet, I particularly like the beer mat, welcome to your Stones local. No reason at all to keep that, but obviously a critical point in the uh, drinking habits of the aforementioned Jarvis. I think walking across the cabinet number two, I'm a Marmite person, so the Marmite does speak to me, but I'm also of a certain age. So this lid which is also of that certain age. And if you look at the stains, the dark stains on the top, those are sticky marmite fingers that have tried to unstick the, the super glue that, that, that is formed when marmite congeals. Um, so we'll never really know what it's like inside that marmite pot. Well, I hope I never know. And then over here, perhaps my favorite, I don't know if Jarvis has talked about it, but I too have a fascination for Cusson's imperial leather, which was always presented as the soap of a better class of person person I, I always wanted to be and here the soap has been uh, used right to the very nub of the Cussons label and is displayed in a small um, Labradorish matchbox in cotton wool. Uh, I'm hoping that the V&A will get in touch and say this has to be on main permanent display but you know fingers crossed. We'll keep our fingers crossed for James too. That was James Brett there, creative director of the Gallery of Everything. Next on the agenda, we head just a few doors down from the Gallery of Everything to a pop-up exhibition bringing together artists to explore the traditions, beliefs and customs that shape our collective cultural histories. Artists at the very start of their career, recent graduates from art schools amongst them, are hung alongside works by the likes of Paula Rago and David Hockney. We took a stroll through the rooms to discover both the light and dark underbelly of fairy tales and folklore, guided, sort of, by curators Flora Fairburn and Katie Heller. And we find ourselves downstairs in the basement at 23 to 25 Jilton Street. It's a temporary space and it's been commandeered by Flora Fairburn and Katie Heller. Welcome both to the programme. Hello. Hello. Hi both. So this is going to be a walking, talking double act. It's going to be a brief one. We're standing in front of a, a work down here in the basement. As, by the way, people will be able to hear in the background, we're preparing for a talk and drinks thing tonight. So the rattling of ice cubes might punctuate our conversation. I mean, it's an occupational hazard, Flora, right? It's fine. So what are we standing in front of here? I mean, we, I feel like we've, we're in the middle of a swarm of bees. So this is a work by Tessa Farmer who has been working with bees and tiny little insects, which look, in this case, particularly like fairies. And this is a medium that she's been using for as long as I've known her, which is more than 15, 20 years. This one's actually called Swarming Fever, made of bones, insects, plant roots, Portuguese man-of-war polyps, 
taxidermied birds, worm shells, snake skin, sea spiders and hedgehog spines. I must wash my hair. <laughs> um, it's an amazing thing. So, and she's been working with this, in this media, in this way, for, for as long as you can remember. As long as I, I can remember. And um, I've worked with her a few times over the years, and always site-specific. And I've always been putting on pop-up exhibitions. And when Katie Heller approached me about doing a show together about fairy tales and folklore and myths, Tessa Farmer popped straight into my head immediately. That brings us onto the subject of the show then, and talk about the idea of, of magical thinking myths. We're in a kind of pagan frame of mind somehow in these rooms, aren't we? Well, actually on the subject of Midsummer, we actually, when we were thinking about when to do this project, we, we instantly veered towards May, didn't mm -hmm. we? And that, I can't remember when we first started talking about it, but it wasn't that long ago. So we've had a very kind of short turnaround. But yes, we very much thought this is a perfect subject for a midsummer exhibition. And in fact, we even had a drinks brand for the opening called Midflower, because we thought that's another good mix. It was made from elderflower and everything. Okay. So, no bat's blood or anything? No, nothing like that. Okay. Very, very okay. savoury. And in fact, the, the theme of fairy tales is obviously a nice antidote to the horrors going on right now. And people have walked in here thinking it, this is a really nice, fresh, new way of sort of thinking about something else for a change. It's actually rather light. There's something nostalgic, obviously, about this kind of thing. There's something about childhood, there's something about kind of a lost kind of perfect kind of world, I suppose, about fairy tales and magical thinking. But some of this stuff seems to be quite future looking as well. As we walk up the stairs, we're down, this, we're in the sort of labyrinthine basement here. There's a few works. What are we looking at here, Katie? David Hockney. This is an this is... No but a phenomenally, I mean, we think of David Hockney, we had Ellie Smith on the, on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about, and she mentioned the beautiful covers of her books. This is beautifully unrepresentative Hockney. This what what do we see in front of us? This is from 1969, actually, isn't it? When he was yeah. at the Royal College, I think. It's the Grimm fairy tale. The Grimm Brothers. This is a fairy tale written in, I guess, pen and ink sketches. On You can see the kind of raw hand of talent here of Hockney, right? Yes, and it, it came from 39... Well, it's 39 loose etchings. There's a text of each tale, so you see this Rapunzel in front of us. and It's something that everybody has some childhood yeah. memory. What are we seeing? Well, who's uh, this crocodile by that we see here? This is number 95. Orlando Seal. OK, this is beautiful. Orlando Seal, he's, ca he's capturing lots of attention. Here. This is lovely. Um, and he's also a rather successful actor, I believe. But he takes, I talked to him about it the other day, he takes his art practice incredibly seriously and paints every day. I have to say he's a wonderful artist to work with as well. Katie came across Orlando and... Um, it's beautiful, this thing. I'm getting some Chagall vibes. Mm, some sort exactly. of yeah, go, yeah. yeah, it's really lovely, really beautiful. Mm. Slightly it's surreal darker. corridor. This is the darker section. Okay. Well, we're here, perhaps just on the subject of the dark side of the fairy tale. Yeah. We have this artist, Rebecca Parkin. Oh, wow. This <laughs> 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 A sort of lascivious Wicked Witch of the West, yeah, licking her lips. The, exactly. Okay. Um, 
And uh, this is a stunning. This is super beautiful. Yeah. And slightly unsettling. <laughs> right. No, completely. Love it. Aren't yeah. They? Yeah. So we're walking out of our um, dark and surreal corridor, up the steps. Had to have Paul in this exhibition. For sure. So here we are, so right as you come in on the right-hand side. So that was a dead cert. I have to say, we were thrilled to, to get these on consignment. And Bar um, Bar Black Sheet is a particularly special work. And then little Miss Muffet and the old woman who lived in the shoe. Yeah. So these speak totally <laughs> directly yeah, to the darkness really of the fairy tale, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. These are stunning. These are totally beautiful. It's lovely. So what are we taking home today? What are you taking off the walls, Katie? Taking? I'm taking well, Christina for a tapestry in the okay. window. Yeah. Beautiful colours with a wolf eating a figure. Oh, it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful, yeah. yeah. That was my inspiration for the show originally. Was it? It's that one piece. I wanted to include that one artist. She was the first artist I wrote to. And she's come all the way from New York to be in the show, the, the piece. Itself. Right. It looks striking off the street. And Flora, what are you clearing a space for on the well, walls of fa Fairburn mansion? There's a mansions. very nice uh, drawing still due to arrive, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which got stuck in Memphis for three weeks. But they have now arrived. They are with the framer today and they're arriving here tomorrow. But they're by Dinos Chapman and uh -huh. they're extraordinarily beautiful and sweet which is not um, something we necessarily no. associate. And, and Jake Chapman's show mm. is on around the corner and it's really interesting to see the two different yeah. deductive positions of them both. But one of Dinos's drawings is called The Princess and the Pony and it's just the sweetest drawing you've ever seen. I think I'd take that home with me. That is all we have time for this week. You can find Jarvis Cocker's exhibition at the Gallery of Everything on Chilton Street until the 29th of May. And his memoir is called Good Pop, Bad Pop. And it's published by Jonathan Cape. Flora Fairburn and Co.'s Once Upon a Time exhibition is at 23 to 25 Chilton Street 2 until the 25th of May. And then online for three months. Wherever you are in the world, you'll have the chance to see it. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan Coombs and Steph Chungu. And Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in.